0: I'm Aaron Rothstein. Welcome to Searching for Medicine's Soul. Our guests today are Dr. Far Kurlin and Professor Christopher Tollefson. Dr. Farr Kurlin is Josiah C. Trent Professor of Medical Humanities in the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine at Duke University, where he also co-directs the Divinity School's Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. Dr. Curlin practices hospice and palliative medicine, He has authored more than 130 articles and book chapters dealing with the relevance of religious ideas and practices for the doctor-patient relationship, the moral and professional formation of clinicians, and care for patients at the end of life. Professor Christopher Tollefson is professor and department chair of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. He has twice been a visiting fellow in the James Madison program at Princeton University. He's the author of Lying and Christian Ethics and co-author of Embryo, a Defense of Human Life. In 2019 to 2020, he served as commissioner on the U.S. Department of State's Commission on Unalienable Human Rights. Both guests co-wrote a book recently, published in August of 2021, entitled The Way of Medicine, Ethics and the Healing Profession. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, delighted.
0: So I wanted to, to get started with the title of the book, which... The background of the title tells a lot of the story. So, Chris, what is the way of medicine, and, and how does it contrast with the way medicine is practiced today?
1: Sure. Uh, the way of medicine is an answer to really two questions, and it's also, I think, maybe even better understood as a way of putting that, those answers into practice in, in a physician's life. And The two questions are, what is medicine, and what is medicine for? And in our book, we we argue for what we think of as um, an answer that's part of a long tradition of thinking about medicine. We argue that medicine is a practice, that it's aimed at human health, and specifically that it's aimed at the health of the patient, that a physician is in a particular kind of community with a community that's oriented around that, that patient's health. And we contrast this with what we call the provider of services model of medicine. On the provider of services model... Uh, Medicine comprises a set of technical skills, and those skills are primarily available for the pursuit of patient satisfaction, understood in terms of the satisfaction of of the patient's desires. Now, that obviously includes health, and we, we wouldn't want to suggest that physicians practicing more in the line of the provider of services model aren't concerned with human health. But often they're concerned with health as one good among many. And in some cases, cases that we're particularly concerned with in the book, they're also pursuing goods that are in one way or another, we think, at odds with the good of health. Whereas on the on the, the way of medicine, the central aim of medicine, namely health in the patient, is always to be pursued. Um. Maybe not necessarily always. There can be cases in which one refrains from pursuing it, but one is never to act directly against that good. That's the the central tenet of medicine, going back to Hippocrates that one should do no harm.
0: Yeah, and you know, when I was reading the book and I, thinking about the provider services model that you describe, even just calling a physician a a provider seems kind of a sterile and anodyne term that always. Was disturbing to me, at least from you know, in my in my very brief career so far. Can you give us some examples of these differences, maybe from from even your own your own practice?
2: Sure. I, I work in end of life care as a hospice doc, and and I formerly was a general internist, but took care of a lot of people with advanced illness. And the way the provider of services model uh, becomes really visible uh, there is that. Frequently, when people are having what are called goals of care conversations um, or family meetings to discuss whether and to what extent some kind of medical intervention should be used to extend or continue uh, the, the life of someone who's got some serious illness, things like ventilators and so on. Um, what, what's striking is because of the influence of the provider services model, frequently Physicians look at patients and/or their family members, and and say up front, "Listen, this is about this is uh, the goal here is not to do what I think is right, or even to do what you think is right. The goal here is to do what you think the patient would choose for themselves. and And our purpose is to make sure we don't get in the way of that, and we provide whatever that is. And paradoxically, I mean, I think people think this is going to be very supportive of families and and honoring of their their autonomy, but paradoxically, perhaps um, this actually uh, we think ab- abandons people because it essentially sets up the doctor's role as just just giving information and leaving all the responsibility for the direction and for the consequences of whatever decisions are made to the family members. Um, the The way of medicine, by contrast, would would begin with an orientation toward what health is available to this patient uh, still? Um, and for many patients, uh, that may be very limited. And then it asks the question, how can we how can we act in a way that's conducive to the healing that's still available to this patient um, while respecting the authority of family members and while kind of acknowledging that um, in our pursuit of the patient's health, um, it's not reasonable to accept burdensome side effects that are disproportionate to uh, the, the healing capacity or the health that's possible for that patient and through through whatever it is we're offering but in that way doctors come in with direction with recommendations they still honor patients authority but they're they're not just giving options um, that, that people choose we're, we're trying together to seek healing that healing which is possible for the patient.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you use that example because I have to say in, in med school, that this was always the line that whenever you come to a patient's bedside and the patient is um, not communicating, that you turn to the family members and you say, what would the, pa- what would the patient want? If you could be the patient, what, what would you want? Um, and it is, it is so common. I mean, it's like giving Tylenol. This is the stock line and phrase that we use all the time.
2: It really is, and I think the, the that it's so common, despite being, once you scratch beneath the surface, being um, not at all well grounded. Uh, uh, there's not good arguments for this approach, um, but it's so common. I think shows the power of the provider of services model in our time.
0: Chris, you, there's you know this concept in the book of these basic goods, and that health is one of these ba- basic goods can you run us through through that and kind of discuss how health relates to these other other basic goods of of human life
1: yeah i think it's it's important to our overall picture that health is one part of human flourishing but it's only one part of human flourishing flourishing human life involves a relationship with a multitude of goods including the good of knowledge the good of friendship A good life, a flourishing life exists in community with other persons. It involves aesthetic experience, opportunities for play, for work, typically some orientation or openness to uh, a relationship with the divine, if there exists such a thing. Um, And we also think uh, aspects of personal integrity are important to, to a flourishing life. Uh, And and that that has a couple of different important consequences. One is that the doctor's focus and the doctor's profession is really oriented only towards a part of the entirety of the patient's life. And and doctors need to be aware of that and cognizant of that. We think that even within health, there are, are going to be different dimensions that are available with regard to a particular need that patients have that satisfy one part of that need, but maybe don't satisfy another part of that need that offer some benefits but burdens that would be avoided on a different path that would not have the same benefits. And, and patients are typically going to be in a position to be the ones who can decide which of those burdens and benefits relate in the most appropriate way to the overall shape of the patient's life. But that overall shape is going to be determined, not just in, ter- in relationship to the good of health, but in relation to the whole constellation of goods that a patient is pursuing. And so among other things, we think that this idea that there is a wide and varied arrangement of human goods that patients pursue in their lives is part of the reasons that, as as Far was speaking about earlier, patients have a certain kind of authority. They're the ones that are in the best position to be able to make a determination of how the different possible interventions that are on offer fit into the overall shape of their, their life and their orientation towards the multiplicity of goods that they're pursuing.
0: So, you know, when you talk about Balancing these goods, it seems like the, the interaction between the physician and the patient is really, in some sense, a, a partnership where you're trying to figure out what is the best route to take for the for the patient.
1: That's right. Um, I think that notion of partnership is is really important. We we think that the physician and the patient should think of themselves as members of a community. And if you're a part of a the community, then you have a common good that you're pursuing common good of any community it doesn't have to be the entirety of all the goods that the members of the community are per, in pursuit of and here obviously the central good is the good of of health for the patient but we also think and i this is i think important to seeing some of the benefits of the way of medicine in terms of how it configures the doctor patient relationship not just from the doctor side but also from the patient side if you're in a community and you're pursuing a common good, then all the members of that community are pursuing not just their own good, but the good of the other members of the community. And it can seem a little bit opaque how the patient can be doing that in relationship to the physician. But we think that, that uh, an ideal of being a good physician emerges from the way of medicine. Um, being a good physician is being oriented towards health in the appropriate way and being oriented towards the patient's good in the appropriate way. And patients should will that for their physicians. They should they should will and hope and desire that their physicians be good doctors, not just because that's going to pay off for them in terms of medical outcomes, because sometimes it might not, but because that is part of what it means to be in a community with, with physicians. And I think that It's not obvious how that exists when you have the provider of services model. If you think of other contexts in which somebody is offering a service and somebody is paying for it, and really that's the end of the transaction, um, you might have some general desire that the person that you're paying to receive the money and that they'll be better off for it. But there's not necessarily a desire that they be specifically flourishing in their capacity as a barista or the person who offers you Wi-Fi, or the person who offers you uh, some sort of service on your automobile, for instance. So I think this this plays into our larger picture of medicine as a profession that uh, really genuinely does profess something on the way of medicine in a way that we think is potentially lost on the provider of services model.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the the provider services model is is sort of in line with uh, like consumerism in a way that you know the consumer comes and asks and the Whoever is behind the counter provides. Right. Actually, if
1: I could just, I mean, just a oh, very yeah, quick, quick comment on that. Uh, yeah. Because just on Tuesday, I had a student from one of my philosophy classes, a philosophy major, but who wants to go into medicine. And unprovoked by me in any way, shape, or form, we weren't mentioning uh, the book or, or any of my work with FAR. But he started worrying, he started telling me about how much he was worried that consumerism had affected medicine, and he wasn't sure how he was going to be able to deal with that when he was in medical school. And his hope in being a philosophy major now is that he's creating the resources for him to be able to resist the the sort of pull of a model that even now he sees as threatening to his overall welfare as a physician.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I I think... Far probably you see it in your practice. I certainly see it in my practice all the time, and um, it's definitely something that uh, I want to get to to with with both of you. But I, first, I I also maybe want to backtrack a little bit and and ask you, Far, define health for us, because it I think sometimes people have very broad definitions of health, but but your definition in the book it, is fairly specific. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Yeah. There. You know, health is we we argue is a real thing. It's it's objective in that sense. It's a something about which two people can uh, reason because it's not made up by one of them. Um, it's the kind of thing physicians can have expertise about. Now, health is we think a complex. Um, reality uh, in certain respects, and so you can't um, speak of health with the with the precision that you might be able to speak of some things. Um, but but you but there is much that can be said about health, and as we note in the book, we're we're indebted certainly to the work of Leon Cass, who we think in the contemporary era has done uh, as well as good a job as anyone in trying to to articulate what what health is. Um, so here's some, some key, ideas, key parts of describing what health is. First, starting with what it's not. It, it's not merely the absence of disease. Um, it's not reducible to um, having all your lab values uh, n- uh, be within the normal range and your CAT scan be without apparent abnormality. Um, rather, it's a characteristic of activity of a living organism Um, and in that respect, human health is similar to the health of squirrels and dolphins and other living organisms. Um, but the health of a particular type of organism is characteristic of the type of organism it is. So the health of a squirrel is going to be displayed somewhat differently than the health of a human being. Similar in certain respects, different in certain respects. Um, uh, Leon Cass ends up describing health as the well working of the organism as a whole. Um, And in second definition, second way of putting it is it's an activity of the body in accordance with its specific excellences. But if you think about a squirrel, just to give an analogy, um, how do you know a squirrel is healthy? It's it's not by scanning them uh, first or drawing blood um, much less by asking the squirrel um, what is it that you value um, in your life? Uh, it is looking at the squirrel and seeing whether it has the kinds of activities that are characteristic of squirrels When squirrels are flourishing as squirrels, you know, beating their tails, chattering, climbing trees, and so on. And human beings we think are similar, although our, of course, our characteristic activities are more complex than those of a squirrel. Um, but the key is a well-working of the, the, the living body. So, Human health is a bodily characteristic. And by that, we do not mean to suggest that mental health is something separate. Mental health is health of human bodies. I mean, uh, uh, it's not the ghost in the machine. Um, And it is um, uh, a characteristic of the the organism as a whole. The kind of thing that doctors can gain expertise about um, and can... uh, can even disagree reasonably with their patients about, uh, particularly when their patients think they're healthy and the doctors can tell that they are not.
0: I, I want to switch, I guess, shift switch gears a little bit, um, and and maybe touch on the idea of consumerism, um, which I think relates in some ways to to autonomy, um, and in, in a chapter of the book on autonomy, you write. Unfortunately, medical practitioners have come to misunderstand autonomy along the way, and medical ethicists have come to overstate its importance greatly, leading to distortions in contemporary medicine and medical ethics. Chris, can you expand on this for us and, and tell us what you, what you mean by this?
1: Sure. And first of all, we, we think that autonomy is something that's very important. Um, I, I would characterize myself as a, a grateful liberal. Uh, I know that criticisms of, of autonomy are frequently attended by more general criticisms of the, the liberal project sort of in toto, and, and uh, I, I have disagreements with those, those larger criticisms. And liberalism begins with the idea that human beings are, are free, equal, and independent. I think all of those are in fact valuable aspects of, of the human condition. They're not the only aspects of the human condition, of course. Human beings strive to be independent, but they also exist in conditions of great dependency throughout their life. Uh, and they strive to manifest the basic equality that they have in virtue of their human dignity. But of course, very frequently, their vulnerabilities lead them to, to exist in relationships with others that are structured by power and unjustly structured by power. Um, and human beings' freedom is, you know, uh, incapacitated in a wide variety of ways that i think are, are bad for people but the ideal of autonomy of making being the author of your choices and in some sense although a limited sense the author of your life has come to mean more than um those that sort of limited amount that limited ideal of freedom to a form of self-assertion and self-expression That doesn't just need to be tolerated by other people, but needs to be positively facilitated by other people. So, that so long as someone is making an autonomous choice, that seems to be sufficient for judging the choice right and for judging that the person who has made that choice has a right to certain forms of assistance. And I think that's what we see moving into the medical sphere, not uniquely into the medical sphere. Um, it also pervades, there's a, a really a wonderful book by, by Carter Sneed called What It Means to Be Human that tracks the same movement of untrammeled autonomy and expressive individualism in the domain of public policy about medical research um, and identifies the goals of medical research as primarily that of promoting the autonomy of people who want to reproduce in whatever ways they want to or die in whatever ways they want to or not reproduce in whatever ways they want to with facilitation from other parties, including in some cases, the the state. Um, We think that 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 is an overstepping of the bounds of legitimate autonomy and of legitimate patient authority. We do think that patients have the final say over whether someone else who's offering to do something to intervene in their lives in some medical way, uh, patients have the final authority over whether to say yes or no to that. But we think that Um, As with authority, generally, authority has limits. And the mere fact that a patient has autonomously requested something or demanded something is not a sufficient justification for making it an obligation for the physician to provide that. And where are the limits of that? Well, specifically, we find them in the uh, the profession of medicine and the answers to the initial question, what is medicine and, and what is medicine for? If medicine is for the sake of health, then requests or demands that go beyond health or outside of health, or that in some way contravene health, seem to be demands that are outside the nature of the offer that a physician is making in that community that we were talking about earlier. Um, they go outside the authority that the patient has to to ask or re- or request something, and in a, in consequence, physicians we think are are within. Not just their rights, but really within the domain of what it means for them to be a good doctor, what it means for them to be a good physician, and saying no, right? This, this is this is outside the domain of what I have committed to, and what I think of as especially important in the relationship that I have with you as my patient.
2: If I could just briefly add, I think for the clinician listeners, uh, a one way to simplify this difference is to think about the difference between autonomy as a first principle or as a boundary. Um, And so the provider of services model treats autonomy as a first principle. I mean, because the provider of services model acts as if the goal of medicine is to satisfy the patient's well being where well being is ultimately a subjective kind of notion, it's what the patient desires. It teaches clinicians to ask people, essentially, what is it you want? And if they want it, as Chris said, then we take that as ourselves as having an obligation to pursue it. Why? Because that's what they want. That's what they're choosing. The goal is to satisfy their autonomy. In the provider, I'm sorry, in the the, the way of medicine, by contrast, um, we recognize that um, autonomy, um, respect for autonomy is, really serves as a boundary condition in the sense that the point of medicine is not to facilitate autonomy. The point of medicine is to seek to preserve and restore the patient's health, but autonomy is a boundary, and we think the right way to talk about it is a boundary of authority insofar as we're only going to pursue the patient's health um, with their permission. We're not going to, in our desperate and and even however well-motivated desire to get them well, we are not going to do things to them that they are refusing, um, that they do not give us consent for. And so we think that whole notion and really central notion of informed consent captures, rightly, the the way that autonomy, um, again, often we think better talked about often as authority, sets a boundary on how we're going to pursue the patient's health.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, what you seem to be saying is that there's this tension in medicine, between the, the the autonomy of the physician for for conscientious objection to refuse to offer certain treatments, um, while at the same time patients are able to to refuse life sustaining treatments, and may may request those same treatments that the the physicians refuse to to provide, um, and so these these two autonomies I guess co- come into conflict in a way. How? Like ethically or philosophically, do we walk this line? Um, Do we act on a case-by-case basis? Are there some general principles that we can abide by? Oh, Chris. Yeah,
1: I I guess I'll 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 take the first go, and then and then Far will clarify. It's like it's a working partnership that we have. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody somebody needs to bring the abstractions down to reality. Um, I I think. I mean, I think that conflict is inevitable when. as far put it, um, autonomy is your first principle, right? Then you have autonomous wills conflicting, um, in their, their self-expression. And there's no real way to negotiate that conflict. If autonomy is, is really the, the only starting point that you have, Um, why should anybody's autonomous choices be privileged over anybody else's? So conflict, I think is just inevitable on that picture. I think if you, if you work with the idea of Differing spheres of authority that the physician and the patient have within the context of their relationship. Um, there's no necessary reason why those those spheres of authority should be in conflict, and I think Far and I think that they're they're not. In fact, that the the domain of authority of the physician is marked out by the physician's expertise with regard to the good of health. Um, a good physician knows the limits of that that authority. Right, they they know that their expertise is not infinite. They know where their expertise runs out. That's maybe a difficult thing to, to know, but I think that is, in fact, part of real, real expertise. And the, the patient has authority with respect to um, refusing the, the offer of intervention that the, the physician has made. And both those forms of authority are, are structured by the common pursuit of, of health. I think if you have that picture there's no necessary conflict. There are going to be de facto conflicts when the physician offers something that the patient um, doesn't understand or thinks is problematic in some way, and maybe more significantly, uh, there are going to be conflicts when the patient wants to say no to something that the physician thinks, in fact, is is important and valuable health-wise. Far mentioned earlier the need for there to be adequate communication between physician and patient, and that adequate communication includes, we both think, physician advocacy. Um, The fact that the patient has authority to say no doesn't mean that that authority shouldn't be exercised in consultation with the physician and in awareness of the the physician's best case recommendation. Um, That's true in, in other contexts of authority as well. I think if we if you look at this in terms of, of different domains of, of authority, then some of what appears to be conflict can be can be worked out in exactly that way. Um, and just to give one one other example. Uh, sometimes when the patient says no, and the physician has made his or her best case, and the patient still says no, um, how is it that the physician? In a way that's consistent with his or her commitment to the good of health, how, how can the physician cooperate in that? In that, no, right? How can the physician say no? Okay, I, I I won't provide this form of care that I think is in fact essential for you. Well, authority isn't always um, exercised in with with uh, in a completely practical, reasonable way. Um, sometimes authority is exercised in a way that is not fully reasonable, without it ceasing to have authority. And physicians can cooperate with patients when patients are saying no to something that the physician really thinks is essential as a way of respecting patient authority in a way that doesn't say, I agree fully with your decision. It doesn't say your decision is right because you made it, because you made it autonomously, because you made it with full awareness of what you were doing. It doesn't require of the physician that the physician go that extra step of ratifying every patient's decision that's made. The physician can not ratify the decision while also um, acknowledging patient authority. And we think in that way, still maintaining a form of community with the, with the patient that then will, of course, extend to accompanying the patient through the further things that will happen um, when the patient has said no to something that the physician thinks is important.
2: Yeah, I, if I, 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 um, this is not to simplify Chris's um, description there. Uh, this is just to uh, apply it in one area. One area this becomes really critical and we have a chapter on this at the end of the book, is is in the area where there is disagreement between physician and patient about whether a particular intervention is medically indicated. And this gets talked about today under the language of conscience and conscientious refusals. And you'll find in people who are disturbed by doctors refusing to provide, again, that's the language, what patients say they need for their well-being, you'll find this uh, frequently claims that doctors are, allowing their conscience to trump the patient's conscience. And, and that language suggests that that what they're seeing um, here is two, two wills uh, uh, that, as Chris said, are necessarily in conflict because they're not going to be the same. And then you just have a power dynamic and understandably people think, why should the powerful doctor get to determine what happens between two wills? But if you think more about the terms of authority, then you realize, um, no, that, and, and particularly, well, both about the conscience and about authority, you realize that what's happening there is not one conscience trumping another. I uh, uh, won't get into it right here, but that that's a contradiction in terms because the conscience judges one's own ac- actions, not, it doesn't, the patient's conscience doesn't judge the physician's actions. The physician's conscience doesn't judge the patient's actions. Each judges their own, and you can't, Formally speaking, one conscience can't trump another. But the other critical thing here is that the patient, yes, can ask for whatever they believe they ought to ask for, and they should, if in good conscience they think it's the thing for them. And yet, as we know in all the rest of life, that does not imply that the person they're making the request to um must agree with them. Um and insofar as the person they're asking, in this case the doctor, disagrees with them and disagrees in such a way that they believe to support what the patient's requesting to cooperate with it would in fact involve them in doing something that is unreasonable, unethical, and particularly contradicting their commitment to the patient's health, then they have authority to say no. And that's what we do in most of human life all the time. We, we recognize we lean on each other. We try to persuade each other, but we don't coerce each other. Um, And, uh, the provider of services model obscures that and suggests that if the patient doesn't get what they want, somehow they've been, their, their, their autonomy has been violated as if their authority had been violated. But under the way of medicine, you see, no, the doctor has to decide, the doctor has authority to decide and make, we hope, conscientious judgments about which actions are conducive to the patient's health, reach some threshold for them. And then the patient has authority to decide which of those proposals from the physician he or she is going to give consent to. Um, and they don't have to agree to, to work the work out disagreements. Uh, or they will have disagreements. They don't have to trump each other to work those out.
0: Let me give just an example of my from my own practice of that. Uh, and that might also take us into the next topic, too. When I was a – it must have been my – it was my first year of residency, and it was my maybe my first week or second week of residency. So I was on nights. I was covering the hospital on nights, covering the oncology service, and um, brand new physician. Um, I remember there was a patient who had stage four metastatic disease. There were conversations that were ongoing, I think, with palliative care and the oncologist because – the disease was incurable, and so the question is what what were going to be the, the, the goals of care or um, what did this patient want hospice or um, potentially more chemo, which was unlikely to help. And the patient was extremely um, ornery, understandably going through a lot, um, had a lot going on at home, so there was a social situation that was very difficult at home. And, and was having, I think, an existential kind of crisis. that Death is on the horizon. Things aren't great at home. And I remember her calling me to the bedside and demanding that I give enough opiates to kill her. Basically, you know, physician-assisted suicide kind of thing. Um, and I was frozen because this was... I mean, I'm a first or second week physician, and I'm being asked basically to kill someone. Um, and it was horrible because I, I sympathized with her situation, that this was really kind of – there was so much that was awful that was going on in her life. But at the same time, I said, I am not going to do this. I cannot do this. Um, I said, I can help you with your pain, but I am not going to give you enough opiates to, to kill you. And I think that is, is an example of this, where physician, where a, a patient may request, it, even in, in these dire circumstances, something that they feel is going to help them, and that the physician, based on conscience, has to say, no, I, I can't provide that. And I think that also brings us into this idea of, um, I think, double effect. And you, 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 you both talk a lot about intent in the book. Um, so, Chris, can you explain the rule of double effect as a as a philosophical philosophical pr- principle? And then I was hoping, far maybe, you could talk about how it how it relates to to end of life care in particular.
1: Sure. Yeah. This, um, thanks for the easy question, Aaron. <laughs> Good one. Um, All yeah, right. <laughs> but I. At, at, at risk of, of a little abstraction, um, let me—I mean—let me say something about the context out of which the need for something like double effect arises, because I it, it think it says something about the the structure of the picture that we're, we're presenting here. Um, it's a—it's a, it's a good-based view. Right? It's our, our, on our on our view, the goods are, goods are central to human action, and the good of health is central to the doctor's life, the doctor's action, the patient's life, the patient's action. And if you have a, an ethical picture that starts with human goods, um, obviously they need to be promoted, right? That's what the physician is doing. They need to be protected. Um, but it, it also seems like you can't really have an adequate openness. We talk about openness to human goods in our book. You can't have an openness to human goods uh, that doesn't have some sort of tendency away from the idea that you should damage them, right? I mean, if human goods are aspects of human well-being, and and that's what the ethical life is about, is about promoting human well-being, human goods, human flourishing, uh, then the idea of damaging human goods seems to be off the table in some way, right? We at least need to restrict it. If the physician is dedicated to human health, how can that be compatible with, with damaging human health? And yet we know that the pursuit of human health inevitably brings with it some damage to human health. We, you, we couldn't possibly address something as significant as cancer. Um, any of the interventions that we have for that surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, also bring about some form of damage to the, to the organism, some form of harm to to human health. Uh, how is that? How is that possible? How can we square that with the fundamental orientation and commitment to human health? Well, I think we do that. We both think that we do this. We do that by framing the orientation in terms of intention, right? What you can always refrain from doing as a physician and as a human being is intending harm to another person, intending damage to another person. And it seems to me clearly when the oncologist is is recommending surgery followed by chemotherapy, their intention is not to bring about the forms of damage that surgery and chemotherapy bring about. It's to bring about the forms of cure and healing that those interventions do with the acceptance as a side effect of the damage to the organism that cutting is going to bring about or that killing fast-growing cells is going to bring about. Um, And so we think that there is a a fundamental principle for physicians, which is that you should never intend harm to the good of health. I think that's entirely compatible and, in fact, required by the physician's profession. But double effect, the principle of double effect says in the fact that there can be harms that it would be impermissible for the physician or somebody else to intend that it can sometimes be permissible to accept as a side effect. If you had a physician that was intentionally trying to bring about the harms that that radiation or chemotherapy does, that would be a bad physician. Um, But it's a good physician who pursues health in awareness that some side effects, some negative side effects can be can be accepted. Um, we can talk, I think there's a lot, lot to say, it's an essential topic in the context of thinking about physician-assisted suicide and, and euthanasia and end-of-life decisions to withdraw, right? There you see exactly that distinction between intending death and withdrawing treatment because of the burdens that the treatment brings, while recognizing that as a side effect, right, life will be shortened. Um, but let me turn it over to Far first to, to see what Far wants to, wants to say on this.
2: Well, the, the classic, um, and this obviously is close to my own practice, the classic way that the rule of double effect has been demonstrated is in the treatment of pain, in particular treatment of pain with opioids. Pain and breathlessness, two very common symptoms as people are dying. Um, and so it's been widely accepted across virtually every moral tradition that uh, uh, that if a patient has breathlessness, uh, distressing, and we would argue health-diminishing breathlessness and or pain, um, it is permissible to treat that pain. And then the question comes, but if you're using opioids, what if those opioids are going to lead to sedation as a side effect, or what if they're going to lead even to su- uh, suppression of their respiratory drive? And, and that might even in some cases, at least in theory, might hasten their death. Um, then it's permissible, one's use of this is permissible if, and we, we think the rule of double effect, which has a formal description that includes four conditions, we think can be summarized by saying you should intend only the good. Uh, so you should not intend to suppress the respiration. Um, you should not intend to sedate them, at least in a way that is itself a diminishment of health. Um, and that you should only accept as side effects those harm, accept uh, harmful side effects that you can foresee if you have proportionate reason to do so. And in this case, uh, proportionality, by the way, is not a scale of like we can balance up eight, you know, eight parts on one and seven parts on the other. It's, it, that's not the way it works. Um, and it's an all things considered kind of proportionality, but in the case where someone's dying and keeping them alive a little longer is literally limited to just keeping them alive a little longer, they're not going to be restored to health and they have serious pain or serious breathlessness. Widespread agreement is permissible to treat the pain and breathlessness and to accept as a not disproportionate side effect, you know, some, some sedation, some even suppression of breathing, even in some cases, some acceleration of when they're going to die. And that's that's the classic one, and, I, and that's that's a critically important. Now I want to describe what we would, we would take as a misuse, a very frequent misuse in our time of uh, uh, where the where the rule of double causation is essential, and people have wanted to dismiss it. And that is, people will argue, and there's some. Very prominent folks, uh, including uh, Bob Trug and Franklin Miller in a, in a book a few years ago, um, who've argued that, A, um, that, that it's not sensible to say that you don't intend something that you can foresee being almost for certain. So for example, you have a patient on a ventilator who is very frail and dying, and you know with great certainty that when you remove that ventilator, they're going to die soon so they would say you're kidding yourself to say that you don't intend their death it's right there in front of you and there and basically the argument is that if you have an action that is causally related to death and you willfully choose that action namely removing the ventilator then you're you know you're responsible for that death and then it's just for, for these folks a matter of weighing up kind of um, in a utilitarian way, generally consequentialist. What's, where's the greater good? Um, is it greater good to, for they to die or greater good for them not? But we would argue that no, you actually, the, the rule of double effect is critical here as well. And, and, and a way that you can see that you do not intend the patient's death is by asking yourself uh, two things. One, what is your plan? Um, and two, what will you do if that which you foresee, namely the person dying, doesn't happen? So if I were to remove a ventilator from someone, people ask me, what is my plan? I would say it's to remove the ventilator. Well, why? Because the ventilator has a number of burdens that at this point, it seems to me, and in dialogue with the family, are disproportionate to the benefits the ventilator promises going forward. Um, And they might say, ha, you, you, so you're, you're saying you don't, suggest, you don't intend the person's death. You're kidding yourself. The way to see it, we're not kidding ourselves is to say, well, what happens if they don't die? And for me, clearly, if the patient doesn't die, I don't think that my plan has failed. I don't think that now that i remove the ventilator and they haven't died, I've got to do something else to make sure they die. But if my intention is that they die, I will, in fact, feel like I've failed. And I have observed this in people who families think it's it's we've had enough stop everything doctors say yeah they're going to die they doctors withdraw the ventilator let's say the patient lives and families can get distressed and say you know you got to do something there this is not what you expected and doctors start cranking up the drugs um i think in our and we believe confusing uh, uh, making the mistake here of taking the patient's death into their intention and, and basically working to bring it about um so those are, those are a couple of areas where this, the rule of double effect cashes out. But this is a norm that is present all over medicine. You can't make sense of what doctors do without appeal to the rule of double effect.
0: Yeah, Chris.
1: Uh, just a very concrete case that illustrates what Farr was just saying. Um, when Karen Ann Quinlan's parents petitioned the court to have her ventilator removed, um, they made the argument that they were not intending her death. They were they were Roman Catholics. They believed that. Sorry, do you mind just
0: giving us a little background on the. Sorry, yeah. So sure, um,
1: yeah. one of the, one of the most famous famous court cases in um, in identifying a patient's right to refuse life potentially life saving or life extending treatment um, involved Karen Ann Quinlan, um, who's in an irreversible coma, um, and her parents. Uh, arguing that this was uh, what she would have wanted and had identified as what she would have wanted asked for the ventilator to be removed. Um, and they they held that they believed that that was consistent with their their Catholic beliefs. And one way in which I think they showed that is after the ventilator removed, Karen Ann Quinlan lived for over 10 more years. Uh, they never suggested that her nutrition, and hydration be removed. They continued to care for her for the rest of their life, uh, for the rest of her life. It's clear that their intention had not been thwarted by her not dying. What they had sought was to have her removed from you know, a set of medical technological interventions that they felt were overly burdensome and were not consistent with the life that they wanted for for their daughter.
0: I want to switch gears again to to medicine as a as a vocation. Hmm. And in a section of the book, On on vocation. You both write that a person should not commit to the medical profession unless she can willingly and enthusiastically embrace and internalize the way of medicine. And I guess, you know, what I see going on in the great wide world of medicine these days um, is a lot of kind of um, professional existential distress. So, for instance, there was a, a New York Times article last month on, on female physicians and infertility. Um, and the survey found that one in four of those who had tried to have a baby had been diagnosed with infertility, which is almost double the rate of the general public. And the article tied this to, to the long hours, physical demands of being on one's feet all day, as well as long training, grueling hours, which is not exactly you know, an easy time to start a family. And, you know, maybe there are other cultural factors at play here. Um, but perhaps fairly or unfairly, one can say the profession might play a role or the choice of profession might play a role. And one might say the same thing with with burnout, um, record levels of physician burnout and dissatisfaction. Um, and I, I think sometimes the solution suggested for this is that we have more of a personal life quote-unquote, outside of medicine. So time with and for family, maybe phrasing it in the way that, that we might discuss it, a balancing of some of the basic goods of life um, that's discussed in the book. So I wonder if we talk about enthusiastically embracing and internalizing um, the way of medicine or medicine as a profession, as a, as a vocation, but trying to balance that with all these other things going on in life. It, it sort of brings about these questions for me as, as I was reading the book. What is a vocation? And does that objection or that point maybe miss something about medicine or about the concept of vocation? And how can the way of medicine maybe salvage what we've lost? It's so Maybe over to you, Far, first.
2: Sure. I, you know, we don't say a whole lot about burnout in the book. Um, but I've been very interested in this because the way burnout's – it is true that physicians have um, roughly double the levels of burnout of other more or less equally situated professionals. Um, and the way that this has been addressed primarily within the profession, I think, displays the power of the provider of services model. Um, and therefore, is actually the, – the, the, the ways that people have tried to respond to burnout are making burnout worse. Um, and and I, I mean that in this sense. Um, Burnout is treated as a problem of improper work-life balance. you talked about how we need more personal time, not such long hours, and so on, and, and a corollary lack of self-care. But the way that way of construing medicine suggests that um, if work goes up, life goes down, and It is true that many doctors experience medicine that way, but we believe that that is a symptom of people coming to be habituated to and experiencing themselves as um, practicing the provider of services model. They are morally detached as the provider of the services model requires. They, They are not asked to commit themselves wholly toward pursuing what they believe is good, because that would, after all, potentially impose values on their practice of medicine that might get in the way of patients' well-being as the patients perceive it. And there's all this market influence and bureaucratic influence that itself reifies this idea that doctors are interchangeable cogs in this kind of um, complex industrial bureaucracy, which is the healthcare system. And so if insofar as that's true, and that's true a lot, then it seems like the thing you need to do is reduce the amount of work you do and and up the amount of life you do. But but here's the thing. Why do we think medicine has been this practice that for forever in human history has been esteemed as a worthy way to spend a life? And that for the most part, um, people who've practiced it have found it richly uh challenging of course difficult tiring but also richly stimulating and rewarding um, we think it's because people know down deep that what medicine is for is healing and to seek the healing of others is deeply intrinsically rewarding such that to work to practice the way of medicine we believe is to experience renewal in your own uh, your own work it's to experience um, the antidote Uh, to burnout. Now that's challenging because the system is not conducive to that, but the antidote I believe to burnout for most folks is to find ways to practice the way of medicine uh, with, with more clarity and with a greater proportion of your time than you're currently doing. Um, You know, I saw that the, I believe it's MD consult um, did a big survey of physicians and their, their income and doctors, as you, you won't be surprised to know, Managed to keep making mu- as much money as they made in the past. And the average doctor said they worked 50 hours a week. Now, knowing as a survey researcher, as I do, that people are lying uh, to some extent and they're, they're going to tend to overemphasize, ov- overstate how many hours they work, that means they're working on average less than 50 hours a week. I don't know anyone who thinks the average doctor in the 1920s or 30s or 40s worked less than 50 hours a week. Um, so the issue is not that we're working more, it's that we're spending more of our time doing things that seem utterly disconnected from preserving and restoring the patient's health.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, Chris.
1: Yeah, this is just a, i think this is complementary to what, what Farr is saying, um, which I, I think was really very nicely put, but you know, the, when we, when we talked earlier about the, the wide range of human goods, of course, that's true for the physician as well. The physician is specially committed to the good of health, but of course, their life has to take shape in light of the wider range of, of goods that are essential to human flourishing. Um, and all I think you know, this is this is a problem in the you know in the world of, of academics these days, in um, the world of, of lawyers. There's there are both. Problems with the way in which professions have been evacuated of a certain kind of meaning, so that it seems like you're doing something that is unnecessary or not not aimed at something profoundly important, and that that needs to be restored. But also, there I think there's a threat um, in the way that it has become increasingly difficult to integrate what you're doing in any of the professions with the other things in your life that are also essential to to giving life meaning and shape, such as your family life. Your faith life. If we you know, we think about academic life or medical life or the lawyer's life as rigidly hived off from family or from faith or from play, from jokes, from from the various things that that we think are, are flourishing, then it becomes difficult to. I mean, for us, there's some line where we say vocation names the overall shape of your your life. That overall shape should have some coherence. I think this is just a problem of, of modern life. How do you give the overall shape of your life coherence when everything s- seems to be put off into its its own box? And trying to find a way that you can live in a university or in a hospital um, or in a law firm or in a business that doesn't create um, unnecessary and alienated alienating boundaries between you and your children or you and your spouse or you and your faith. I think is a real challenge that that all the professions need to address today, not just medicine.
0: Yeah, and and do you think it it in some ways our modern life undoes the concept of vocation? That the concept of vocation takes into account all of these other things that are important in life, all these other goods.
1: Um, right. No, absolutely. People, yeah. I mean, you know, medicine is. We say that it's vocational, but we don't say that it's your single vocation, right? Your vocation is the overall shape of your commitment to goods and persons and how it all hangs together. And if you have, you know, if you think of your life as solely vocationally committed to medicine, I mean, you could only do it. I don't know how many how many hours a week you could possibly be a, med- a physician. Um, if the rest of your life throughout the week has no connection to that, has no integration with that, then you're living a divided life. You don't have a vocation. Um, and you need to figure out how to how to bring a kind of coherence to the the pursuits that your life ought to have in order to be a fully flourishing life.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and and that actually perfectly segues into I, I think the last question that I have for you both, um, and I, I'd like to hear what you both think about this. I it's easy to lose hope for for the future of medicine. Um, as a vocation, as a noble art where you can practice a consistent ethic. The, the incentive seemed to me to be so perverse on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and this is really, I would say, across the board at, at almost every institution that I have friends who are, who are working for. Um, I myself spend probably 50% of my time that's supposed to be caring for patients looking at a computer, whether it's writing notes, putting in medication orders, imaging orders, things like that, which is, again, not an uncommon tale. Reimbursements are to some extent based on patient satisfaction. So you incentivize the provider services model that you both discussed. And hours are poured into um various online modules or videos on health and wellness, fire safety, um, <laughs> HIPAA laws about you know patient privacy. I mean, I could go on there. It's, it's kind of- Oh, I, I could go on for you. <laughs> yeah. And, and it feels as if we're being pulled in many different directions um, and pushed in many different directions, but all of those directions lead towards the provider services model and away from the way of medicine. So I wonder: Is there hope for the profession? I hope you both say yes. Uh, and and what does the future look like, what, or what can be done to change this seemingly inevitable march towards uh, "quote unquote" providership?
1: Or could I could I go first so that you can sure. have the last word on this, since it's more appropriately your last word? Um, I'm just going to say something that's not directly related. Uh, And i think as i said life in a university the academic life has similar it's not the same but but similar kinds of concerns um and one of the ways that that i have tried to address them over the last six or seven years um that i think will has some parallels especially with what far and i have done over the last 12 years in terms of the seminar that we've we've taught and the upshot of that seminar and the lives of various people and in fact, maybe I even learned this from the seminar and it's, it's upshot. I've, um, my family moved to a house closer to the university, to where I work. Um, and we've made the, our house available and open for a wide variety of events involving students and faculty at the university who have similar concerns to ours and are worried about the future of the university, the future of their profession. And what we've tried to do is to start building up smaller forms of community within which those those concerns can be shared and within which people in units larger than one, right, on their own, worried about what the future holds, can start to strategize together, come together to um, create opportunities and possibilities, and to extend that network um, in ways that, that maybe down the road, I mean, certainly to some extent now, are going to create alternative models within the overall academic profession within which students and faculty can interact with one another, pursue work, pursue research, pursue teaching in a way that that is more integrated with their lives overall and taps into the sources of flourishing that we think the academic life makes available. And I think, you know, you see this, one of the things that is amazing to me about the seminar that Far and I have taught over the last 12 years is the extent to which students that we had six years, eight years, 10 years ago have started to do that themselves. Uh, they've started to come together to form uh, networks of people who share the same concern that you have, Aaron, and are trying to provide support for one another and to create communities in which they can start working out better possibilities for the, the future. And uh, to me, that gives me a lot of hope.
2: Yeah, and I, I am likewise, though not optimistic, certainly not in the short term, uh, about the profession, am, um, confident that it will not entirely, um, th- th- I'm confident that eventually its renewal will come. Um, you know, there's a, just to give a theological, uh, note here, Christian Hope, uh, my late colleague Alan Verhey said, and I believe he, he may have stolen this from Paul Ramsey, um, But that Christian hope means we neither – we need neither fear the problem nor trust the solution too much. Um, But I'm I'm confident also because people keep getting sick. That is not going to stop because of the human condition. This is part of the objectivity of health and illness. People keep getting sick, and every time people get sick, they – embody this and they confront medicine with the reality that what their doctors really long to do and really know down deep they're meant to do is to attend to that person's health and try to seek their healing. And that, that is what this profession is for. So I think we are, we have a kind of perpetual resource to keep us from forgetting. And, um, and the other thing that makes me Hopeful or confident is that people are so dissatisfied. Both patients and physicians and nurses are deeply dissatisfied with the provider of services model's uh, effects. Um, They don't like being demoralized. They don't like detaching from their work. They don't like being treated as a cog in the machine. They don't like the notion that their judgment is somehow a threat to patients. Patients don't like. Doctors drawing circles essentially around them and saying, you make the decision. It's your responsibility. I'm I'm just here to give you options. Um, and so that dissatisfaction, I think, also is a resource or, or creates the possibility for a renewal movement. Um, and finally, the way of medicine, I mean, we're not coming up with some fancy technological new seven-part moral theory that we're just putting into words something that we've received and we're trying to restate for others. It's it's pretty simple. The idea that doc that medicine is for healing, that doctors do not ever intentionally harm, that's a pretty simple idea. And you can start right with that and join some colleagues, as Chris said, and start to kind of find ways to resist the demoralizing effects of the provider services model right now. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to the seeing what I get to see in my lifetime of the renewal of medicine.
0: Great. Uh, on that note, thank you both so much for, for joining us today. It was uh, a really edifying conversation. Appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thanks, Aaron.